Scripture this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians, and chapter 1. I'm going to share with you, um, as we begin a new series, the new series is Gospel-Centered, How the Gospel Changes Everything. Gospel-Centered, How the Gospel Changes Everything. Today, I want to share with you God's Word about the power of God, the gospel to us, its power. And over the next several weeks, we want to unpack the gospel in us, what it does, the gospel for us, that's God's plans for this world, the gospel through us, how God calls the church to respond and, and uh, mirror His heart in the world, and then the gospel renewed in us. It's a call to revival. And Paul the Apostle wrote to a culture that was governed much by the same spirit of the age that we find ourselves increasingly in. It was a, the church at Corinthians was a cosmopolitan uh, church from, in a cosmopolitan city, which was one of the major crossroads of that, of that time, of trade and power, of wealth. There was a term called, that they used called to Corinthianize. It was wide open, no holds barred, uh, anything goes. Even in the temple where they worshipped, they had prostitutes that you could pay. And with that act of prostitution, uh, sex outside of marriage, they declared that as a worship to God. Much like today, men and women are calling things that are good evil and evil good. And... Uh, Paul wrote to, to them about the power of God, how it has, it's expressed in the gospel to change our lives radically from the inside out. Religion tries to change us from the outside in, but the gospel changes us from the inside out. Praise his name. And so he wrote to them in that, in that culture, that culture that even even practiced incest and called it okay. Much like today, there are different forms of sexual expressions that mankind is calling okay, but, but there's no depths to what the Corinthians, there was no depths to what they would not stoop. And so Paul wrote about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in our fast-changing world that seems increasingly alien to the followers of Jesus Christ and and to, and quite frankly, which Christians seem increasingly alien to this world, we have four options. We can pretend that change doesn't exist, that things are always the same, and be like the band of the Titanic that continued playing as the Titanic sank to its watery grave. We can throw our hands up in despair and go into what I call a spiritual fetal position, or we can lash out, we can be judgmental, we can act that we are morally superior and self-righteous in this world because we keep God's rules, and you all don't, but we do. None of those three will display the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ like option number four. And option number four is where we, we choose to engage the world by regrouping and repairing and renewing and re 
committing ourselves to the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. It is imperative in our world that is so rapidly changing and embracing a post-Christian worldview, a secularism. Secularism where God is out of the picture and man sits on the throne of their own destiny. It's in, it is imperative that the church as the uniquely called ones and the ones that are equipped, that Jesus said, you are salt and you and light, but don't hide your light under a bushel, but do good works in the name of Jesus so that men may know who your heavenly Father is. It's increasingly imperative that you and I, church, that we know the gospel well, that we live it out and we know how to communicate it. And I'm absolutely convinced as a follower of Jesus Christ and it is my present calling as the pastor of Grace Assembly of God, I'm convinced and convicted that we will do and we must do and enter the work of the gospel, which is the hard but the joyous work of seeing lives change, praise His name. That we will not settle for options one, two, or three. We will not settle for our ticket being punched to heaven and then coming only on Sunday mornings, but that the gospel of Jesus Christ has intended and was intended and is indeed the hinge point, the center point of all of history of mankind, and that the gospel is intended to be our center point and our hinge point around which all of our lives would revolve. God has called us to this, and I'm convinced further that the gospel was never meant to be tepid or lukewarm, that God intends you and me for me to live out the gospel with faith and with risk and being brave and courageous and dreaming big dreams for God and knowing the power of the gospel because it's not only for salvation, but the gospel is, as Paul declares, for those who are being saved. It's not a one-time event, it's an entrance into the power of God in our lives. And I'm also convinced that the future of the church, the future in church must be embraced by the generations that are coming behind us, but they will only embrace not a lukewarm gospel, but the power of God that is able to save men and women, praise His name. A faith that is all out in your face, no reserve, no regrets, no retreat. And we believe the gospel is not only good for us and for our children, but perhaps more importantly, that we believe the power of the gospel is for the lives of men, women, boys, and girls beyond our immediate purview, that God cares about everyone, praise His name. Amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. And so I want to unpack this with you the next few weeks and the Lord helping us, God will do a work in our lives. Praise His name. I believe the gospel should shape our aspirations. And I believe the gospel should shape the concerns of the church for the community. And the concerns of the community become our concerns so that we earn the right, if you would, to declare the gospel with faith and power and with a genuine witness. It is much more than declaring the Romans road. It is much more than that. It is living it out. Praise his name. And the good news is you and I get to do that. Praise God. We get to be salt and light. First Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 31. 
I want to begin today by reading verse number 18. The first thing is this, is the gospel is the power of God. Paul wrote these words, he said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel, in your notes, if you you can fill those out, and I encourage you to, they're found in your bulletin or your program, The gospel of Jesus Christ is not good advice, but it is good news. Not good advice, but it's good news. It's not good advice that we can take or leave, but it's good news because we only have two paths in life, perishing or salvation. Salvation because we are helplessly lost without God and without His hope. And when we're helplessly lost, it requires someone to save us. Uh, just recently, the last week and a half or so, there was a um, Major League umpire, Major League Baseball umpire, who was in Pittsburgh, and he was staying in a downtown hotel. And he, he crossed one of the rivers, uh, one of the bridges, um, on his way to the stadium. If you've ever been to Pittsburgh, it's really a neat city. We pastored two churches within 40 miles of Pittsburgh and, and actually pastored one that was right on the banks of the Allegheny that flows down. There's two rivers that flow into Pittsburgh, and then a third mighty river is formed. And I could still see those bridges that were yellow. There's several of them that you cross into to get to downtown. He was crossing one of these by foot, and there was a woman that was about to leap off the bridge into the raging waters below. And people were looking, they're standing, they didn't know what to do. And this Major League umpire rushed up to her and began to engage her and begin to offer her and to talk with her, offer her some words of hope. And it ended up that he talked her out of taking the final leap and engaged her, took her, got her something to eat, and engaged her about what what she was doing and why there was hope in her life. And God's Word says that when you and I were hopelessly lost without God and without hope, that Jesus Christ did not come to give us good advice. He came to save us. He came to save us. The power of God. And so perishing... Perishing is because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. And they're going to show that on the screen, and I'll read it to you. Just follow these words, if you would. For all, would you all say all? Just say all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. In other words, it paid the satisfied, the penalty, paid the price in His blood through faith. 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he, that's God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, just let me, let me unpack that. How many know that's a lot of words? Paul the Apostle does, he, Paul would never write one of the elementary books that I had in first grade that said something like, see, skip, run. He writes full paragraphs, half pages. But this is what he was saying. What he was saying is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and we have all sinned. And because God is righteous, that has to be taken into account. It cannot be overlooked, because God is holy and God is righteous. All have sinned fallen short of the glory of God. That's sort of a gut punch when we think we're something and we're okay. It's a gut punch when we think that if we do certain things, we're okay. It's a gut punch when even as believers, we can keep the rules and come to church and do all the other things and yet do some things that aren't right and hope no one ever finds out. It's a real gut punch that simply declares all of sin and fallen short of the glory. And there's no, there's, 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 no, there's no getting around that except, except God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty of our sin. Um, someone put it like this, we were so bad that Jesus had to die to bear the penalty of our sin. How many know that's bad? We were so bad. But when he came and he satisfied the penalty of God's wrath, and I understand that our world wants to reframe God is that God is is all love. But because God is holy and God is God, he is all love, and he's but his holiness also demands righteousness. And the holiness of God means that there is a wrath of God that is all-consuming. So Jesus Christ came, and he willingly came, as the Son of God. And then, because of that, Paul said that if we accept that by faith, it brings about salvation in our life and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Could someone say amen? Amen. I want to point out two things. Uh, You can read a lot of things on the Internet by a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about. How many understand that? It's wild. Wild. Just like, don't believe everything you read in the newspapers that you buy at the grocery store on the way out with all the secrets. 
They've gained 75 pounds. That means they have cancer and they're going to die in a week and a half. Wow. But, there, but what, what you can find on the Internet is that how could God be a loving God and let all these people die? How could God be a loving God and consign men to hell? What the Bible clearly says is that because of the righteousness of God and the character of God, He's made a way of escape called salvation for you and for me. It's because of His love and His righteousness that He's made a way of escape. How many, how many understand that? Thank you, Lord, is right. And the second thing is, the second thing is there is a, a teaching out there. It's been around. It's been around since the New Testament. It keeps popping up because it's really, it's a convenient, convenient alternative to some of the inconvenient truths of the Word of God. It's called universalism. That in the end, God's love will prevail and all will be saved. Paul is very clear in this passage that it is our faith that affects salvation in our life. How many understand that? And so, so, in our notes this morning, it is God's power to save us and our choice to place our faith in Jesus Christ. We do this by believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth. And, and Jesus said, we're born again. Praise his name. We sang the song, A Good, Good Father. Good, Good Father. I was, uh, I, was I, don't, I don't know, eight or nine years old, and we were visiting my grandmom up in northern Maine, Washburn, Maine. And they lived on a, a, they, they lived on a, a hill that overlooked that town of about 15, 1800. And one of the really cool things was that they, they had on the second, uh, they had steps going up to the second story, and wooden steps, and they were shiny and slippery, but they had a banister. And so you just hold on to the banister if you're an adult. If you're a kid, you slid down the banister. How many, how many have ever done that? That's, that was better than a roller coaster ride because you did it and hoped you wouldn't get caught. It was great. And, uh, yeah, it was great. And so one day my dad was was carrying my baby sister, my only sister, down the steps and he couldn't hold on to the banister and his feet went out from underneath him. And when he did, he knew that he was going to... I mean, it's one of... Guys and ladies, some of you know, there's certain times you fall and it's downhill and you know there's no way out of this thing. You're going to hit really hard. But he clutched her tightly, and he, he moved his body so, so that she would not bear the brunt of this, and he struck himself on the side of, a, of the step, the edge of it, in his spine right here in his lower back, and it injured him. And I remember for the next two years, he would, he would try all sorts of things. He ripped his, some things in his lower back, and he had a donut that he would sit on. I mean, it was really, it was really something, you know. But he did that because he was a good father. And his instinct 
was to protect and to save. And the righteousness and the instinct of God is to protect you and to protect me, to save us. And he gives us a choice. That's the good news of the gospel. You and I have a choice. Can someone say amen? Praise his name. The second thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the gospel tells us four things. And in fact, this, this is called uh, the narrative, or it, it answers the narrative of the, of the Scripture. And by the way, for those of you, how many, are, how many of you are into studying about worldviews? Let me see how many we have this morning. I, a few will, like, sort of. Worldviews answer seven or eight questions such as, is there a God or gods? Um, is, uh, is, is the material world, are the chairs that you're sitting on really real? Or do they have a person? Are, are they personal? Or there's varying things within there. Where, what's man's, where, what happens when you die? This is what the Word of God says. It, go, it does this. It simply says, in the beginning, God. And we take it by, by there. Our relationship with God is based on faith in Him. And so, the gospel provides for us, and the scripture provides for us a, a, a storyline, or the narrative, or the plot line of what God has done for us. And verses 24 and 25 of 1 Corinthians 1 say this, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, that means anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, what the gospel tells us is what God wants for us, what his desires are for you, what the scripture tells us, and that's creation. You go back to the creation account. Read Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. Is that you and I are made in the image of God. That explains why God is such a good God, a loving Father, because we're made in His image. But we're made to carry out His ways and to expand His presence in the earth. That's, that's what we are created for. It tells us, secondly, what happened to us and what went wrong with the world. That's called the fall. The fall, you can read about that in, in the early chapters of Genesis. The fall took place when, when Eve was con confronted by uh, the, a, a serpent um, who personified the devil, evil. And God had said to them, as, as, as your creator, I give you everything in the garden. You can have anything you want except this one tree. You can't eat of that. It's the knowledge of good and evil. You can't take of that. And the first thing that the serpent said to Eve was, why don't you eat of that? And she said, because God said, and he said, that's not so. He introduced doubt, and he said, God knows you'll be like him if you eat this. He cast doubt on God and then said, if you disobey, you'll become better for disobeying. And what happened in the fall, then humanity took on themselves a place that's reserved for God and that is that we want to decide what is good and evil, and humanity will always choose what they want, whether it's good or evil, and we will call it good. That's how it works. To the individual who is contemplating an affair outside of marriage, 
they will minimize, they will maximize everything that is wrong in their marriage, and they will minimize what God says, and they will maximize all the reasons that they should leave. It's, it's how it works. We will call good evil, and we will call evil good, because ultimately we will call it what benefits us. The third thing that God's Word tells us is what God has done in Jesus Christ to put things right. What God has done in Jesus Christ to put things right. And that's called redemption. How many have heard the term kinsman redeemer? Just raise your hand if you, heard, if you know what the kinsman redeemer is. Kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, in that world, in that world, everyone in your family or your household, they were known as your kin. Even your servants, they're kin. And so the kinsmen in, in that world, if if someone came and carried off one of his servants, he would go out after them and declare war until he got back that servant. Or if it was a relative, he would do whatever it took. All the resources that he had at his disposal, he would go back for the honor of his name and of his family, and he would go out there and he would bring them back. In the book of Ruth, there was a, a, a woman by the name of Ruth, and there was, she was a Moabitess. A Moabitess were people who were not of the people of God, but she had married, married a young man who was the son of Naomi. Remember, it's a beautiful story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and redemption. And, um, and anyway, and in her country, there was big famine, and she was part of Naomi's now kinfolk, Naomi's husband died, and she decided, uh, the mother-in-law, that she's going back to, to Israel, to her own people. At least she knew them, and she had property there. And Ruth said, I'm going with you. And Naomi said, no, don't do that because there's no future for you. And she said, where you go, I will go. And so she, Ruth goes with Naomi, her, her aging mother-in-law. And evidently, Ruth was a beautiful and a very intelligent young woman, and quite resourceful. And so when the harvest time came, uh, the mother-in-law, being a, a good mother-in-law, she's trying to fix up Ruth. That's what she's trying to get her connected with somebody. And she said, over there, there's this guy by the name of Boaz, and he's really wealthy. He's a little bit older than you, but, but you know, the, our, our Hebrew law says that that even for the stranger and the alien and the foreigner in the times of harvest, that you're allowed to go into his field and whatever is left, you can, you can gather that up and you go gather that up and bring that home and we'll, we'll stave off starvation. And so Ruth, goes, she sashays over there and she's gathering up this stuff and Boaz come out, maybe on his camel, I don't know what in the world he was on, he's surveying the fields and all of a sudden it's like, Holy mackerel, who is that? He says, Yoy. <laughs> and so then he comes to the foreman and he says, Hey, come here. You see that one over there? He said, You make sure you leave handfuls on purpose for her. Ruth was already worming her way into his heart. She wasn't even aware of it. And so, sure enough, and old, not old Naomi, but Naomi discerned that Boaz really liked Ruth. And he said, this is what you do. 
And as it came about, Boaz decided, you know, I might be a little older, but that, that young lady, she's beautiful and she's starving. Maybe I can marry her. There's one problem. One problem, the right of the kinsman redeemer. And, and I'm not going to get into all this. Don't complicate the sermon. But there, people had multiple wives back then. And so he goes and he calls all the elders of the city out to the gate. And he said, I, look, I want to marry this young woman. But there's someone who has a closer right to her called a kinsman redeemer. And I have to ask him if, if he wants to marry her. And so Boaz, being the smart guy he was and the money that he had and all the other things, he calls the guy out there. And he says, Ruth's available. Do you want to marry her? And, you know, I don't know. The guy's eyes probably lit up, but he said this. But if you do, you know, she wants to have kids and you're going to end up paying for 10 kids to go to university. You know, something like that effect. And, and the guy's thinking, eh, man, I better not complicate things anymore. And he said, no. And so there was a thing that they did with the shoe that demonstrated that he dropped the shoe. And that day, that day, Boaz exercised what is known as the right of the kinsman redeemer. And he, he bought back, if you would, and he took Naomi to be his bride. And by the way, out of that line came Obed, David, and it was a direct line to Jesus Christ. It's absolutely a terrific story, but it's the whole idea of being the kinsman redeemer. And when you and I, when you and I, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 5, when we were without strength, we were lost, we were hopelessly lost, there was no way that we could bridge the gap between us and God we bore, we would look, we're staring at the penalty of the wrath of God, even though we didn't realize it. But because of his great love and because he's a righteous God, he sent his only son to buy back you and me. That's what redemption's all about. Can someone say praise God? Yes. Yes. And the, the fourth thing it answers is how history will all turn out in the end. If you're wondering where this is all going to end up, it's called Restoration, and it's chapter 19 through 22 of Revelations. And God will prevail. God will prevail, and His purposes will prevail, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And, you know, and some say, well, I, I don't know about this. You know, what I learned in school was I learned this, I learned that. Listen, Paul declared, he said, that the wisdom of this age that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this age always, always will take us away from God. The wisdom of this age is the foundation of it. The wisdom of this age is to determine what we want to be called good and evil. And ultimately and inevitably, the vote is always for something that takes us away from God. But God's plan is for salvation for you, but it's also for all of his creation. Can someone say amen? God is so good. The last thing I want to share with you is this. The gospel is power for being saved. Not only for salvation, but for being saved. Verse number 30. But by his doing, 
That's God's doing. You are in Christ Jesus. An astounding statement. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What that means is that we experience God as the source of our life in Jesus Christ. But by His doing, you're in Christ Jesus. By His doing. By His doing. Because out of His great love, He loved us. So that by God's doing, He came to this earth to bear the penalty of our sin. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Not good advice, but good news. We are now in Christ. This, this heart, this person who sees through a glass darkly, this person who is prone to make Decisions that carry me away from God because I'm human. This person that we could no more, if we had to go to heaven, if we had to go to heaven, I could only jump so high, and you don't want to see me jump. It might only be 13 inches anymore. Uh, how, how, what was, what was uh, Michael Jordan's vertical leap? Can anyone tell me what that was? It was huge. Was it 42 inches? I mean, some of the modern-day athletes. I mean, the best in our own strength. We cannot leap from here to there. But God could and did come down. And we experience Him as a source of life. He becomes the hinge of our life. He becomes the center point of our life, the true north, the hinge, like the door on the frame that connects us to the rest of the building. And, and we swing and we're aligned with, on that hinge. And it, being saved means that we come home. We come home. We enter His kingdom. The home of the good, good Father. The home of the home that the prodigal son, when he had wasted everything, he'd get up and he said, maybe, perhaps, I can get something to eat in dad's house. And all the while, while he expected wrath and judgment and hoping that he could hire on as a servant, his father, as a good, good father, had been looking for him and longing for him. And one day he saw him, he saw, he saw this figure could it be? And it took his breath away. My son. And God's Word says he ran to him. And the likelihood of that happening in that Middle Eastern culture in biblical times was zilch, zero. Because his son, his son had destroyed the reputation, his legacy in the community, his father's reputation. And the last thing that he should ever do as a father would be to welcome his son back because it would be saying to the whole community that what his son did was okay. 
What his son did was take a third of the inheritance that was due him of his father's wealth, and he wasted it in just a few short years. And yet his father sat literally, if you would, I guess, on the porch of the house. Always his eyes were hoping for that one road, that dusty road, that one day he would see his son, and one day he saw him. And what God's Word says, instead of sitting there judgmental and say, you wait till he gets here, and I'm going to give him the what for Yet the Bible says he ran to him and he fell on his neck and he hugged him. The man was welcomed home. And when we come to Jesus Christ, the power of God for salvation, we come home. We experience order out of chaos and peace. We experience the voice that calls us from the grave and we come out. We experience what it means to be an orphan and now to be a son or a daughter that's called home. We enter His rest. We know His shalom or His peace or His shalom is what it's called. We enter community and relationship with God and with people. I was reading this past week in the book of Isaiah, one of the promises to God's people when they're home is that He gives us a song in the night. Song in the night. Rather than anxiety, and what's going to happen, and what will tomorrow bring, we come home and there's peace in His home. It means that that the power of Christ's kingly rule is now present among the gathered. Tim Keller, some of you know Tim Keller, writes, a new order in which power, money, sex, relationships, recognition, and success are reordered in the light of the order of God's kingdom. We come home. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. And today, because of the righteousness of God and the holiness of God, And because he's a good, good father, the offer is still on the table. Salvation or our own way. It means that we can be saved by his work of grace that came down. We cannot cannot jump into heaven. We cannot go there. But God could and did choose to come to us. We enter his kingdom. We have salvation by believing in our heart and thanking God for what he's done in Jesus Christ and confessing with our mouth. We enter God's kingdom through repentance and becoming like a child. And becoming like a child, it's repentance as a way of humbling us so that we become like a child. And repentance simply means, friends, first of all, it's not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It's a freeing word. It's a word in relationships when you say, I'm sorry, that has a way to bring life into the tense situation of home. I'm sorry. We say to God, I'm sorry. We might say to God, God, I I, I didn't know, but I'm sorry. I found this in counseling, counseling people who are married there comes a point, and I pray that when I, I meet with people that the Holy Spirit of God will move in 
and both of them will come to the point that they're no longer willing to count all the offenses against the other person, but they suddenly see and they take ownership of where they are and they're sorry and all they want to do is make things right and they're willing to say simply, I am so sorry for how I've grieved you. And repentance, when we come to repentance, it's taking ownership, taking ownership and being thankful to God and saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't know, but now I know. And God, I'm responding to your love, and I just want you in my life. And I am so grateful for what Jesus Christ has done. And Lord, I receive it by faith. Praise his name. Amen. That's what salvation does. It's the power of God. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Praise his name. Amen.